Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's about the Bills and the beer. Now, here's your host, John Murphy. Here we go. Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. My name is John Murphy. I'm the play-by-play voice of the Buffalo Bills. And this is where we talk about the Bills and the beer, just like we say in the open to the show. We're going to talk about both on this podcast. One's going to be a little bit easier to talk about, that's for sure. That'll be the beer. Our sponsor, Sullivan's Brewing Company of Kilkenny, Ireland, the makers of Sullivan's Maltings Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Irish Gold Ale, and Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. Three fine beers available in bars and taverns all over uh, the eastern United States for the most part. We're going to talk with Sullivan's CEO, Michael Mead, about the new deal between Sullivan's and the Global Beer Network, what it means for Sullivan's. We haven't had Michael on the podcast since our first one about a year and a half ago, and we're going to talk about the uh, what it means, that deal with the uh, Global Beer Network, how Sullivan's will eventually be available all over the country. It won't be too long, so looking forward to that. On this podcast, we're also going to talk about the Buffalo Bills, and there's a lot to talk about, right? We uh, went to longtime Bills observer Sal Mariana, a reporter for the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. He's covered the Bills for the newspaper, written several books about the Bills and Buffalo sports. Great thing about Sal, he never shies away from making his opinions known. He has opinions. He has a lot of opinions about what happened last Sunday in Kansas City and about where the Bills go from here. And uh, we're going to talk about that with Sal Mariana. Um, the Bills' overtime loss in Kansas City, the AFC Divisional Playoff game. I find that I share some of Sal's uh, opinions about that game. First of all, from my opinion anyway, this was an amazing game. You know, Monday morning, and the loss still fresh in the minds of many Bills fans, I said this on the radio, on WGR Radio, the flagship for the Bills. I said, you know, as much as this game hurts, and it hurts, it hurts a lot, And as much as Bills fans have to second guess and kind of mull over what went on and decisions made, eventually, maybe you're not ready yet, but eventually you have to acknowledge and you have to appreciate what a tremendous football game it was, even despite the fact that the Bills lost. An amazing game to watch. Look, there's plenty to second guess, to wonder what if. But it was a great game. You had the two best quarterbacks in the game, Patrick Mahomes of the Chiefs, Josh Allen of the Bills. Two high-powered offenses, two rosters full of playmakers making plays, competitive playmakers, guys who just really want to win. And it was an amazing finish. The last two minutes, lead changes in the last two minutes, an amazing finish. Never saw it coming. It was amazing. The Bills 13 seconds away from hosting the AFC Championship game, and it got away. Look, there's the discussion about the kickoff after the Bills took the late lead. Should they have kicked it short? All right, sure, I'll give you that. But look, there's no guarantee that that was the right move. The Chiefs are loaded with playmakers, many of whom are return specialists. Who knows where that ball goes? By the way, the Chiefs kicked away, kicked it deep 45 seconds before, uh, and the Bills scored off that position. The Chiefs surrendered the lead. All all the Bills needed on, on their kickoff there were two plays, two defensive plays. Chiefs got 45 yards set their kicker, Butker, up for a field goal to tie the game. So it's important, and it's good. It's, it's You're right to ask questions about the decision to kick off. But more importantly, the Bills' defense following the kick. They played a prevent-type defense. Chiefs made two plays against the Bills to set up the game-tying field goals. 45 yards, that's all they needed, and they got it. And they might have gotten that even if a short kickoff had happened, but they got it because of the defense I think the Bills were in. I question that decision. And Sean McDermott really not addressing that. Uh, the bigger issue than the decision to kick, kick it deep, though, even if they had kicked it short, the Bills had to play defense, and they did not. 
Just one of the many issues from Sunday's overtime loss. We'll talk about more of them with our first guest, Sal Mariana of the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. He's up next right here on Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with John Murphy. Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. Time to talk about the Bills. And our guest has been covering the Bills for the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle for more than two decades. He's written several books regarding the Bills and Western New York sports. Our guest is Sal Mariana. Sal, thanks very much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Hey, Murph. Thanks for having me. I was reading the, the, the front of your Twitter page, your description. You, des- you describe yourself as generally grumpy, but not always. <laughs> I think that's pretty accurate. You usually aren't a bit. I, I love it in baseball season when you tweet out uh, comments about the Cubs or the Yankees' latest performance. That's always entertaining. Murph, you've known me for a long, long time. I think you have a good read on my personality. <laughs> Are you grumpy about uh, last Sunday night, the way the Bills lost to Kansas City? Uh, there's a lot to be grumpy you know, about. I, I got to be honest, Murph, I am. I mean, you know, we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be neutral observers, obviously. And in the media. And yeah, I want the Bills to win. I mean, I'm a Buffalo guy. My whole family is from Buffalo. They all still live there. They're huge fans. And, you know, of course I want the Bills to win. And, you know, and it was just really a gut punch. That was, and we talked about it after the game. We were, we were waiting uh, after we were leaving the stadium. Mark Gaughan at the Buffalo News, who has yep. been covering the team as long as I have, since the late 80s. And we were discussing, is this the worst loss ever? And I came to the conclusion, Murph, and you, you might disagree, I think it was, and here's my argument. Wide right was a great game, and Norwood missed a kick. It was, it was a tough kick. It was one play, and it was obviously a gut punch because it was the Super Bowl. And then Music City Miracle was a fluke, Murph. I mean, it was one stupid play in a game that was probably mediocre over the whole 60 minutes. And then that team probably wasn't going anywhere. This team, Murph, the way they lost that game to that opponent in that stadium with what was going to come, right? Hosting the championship game. And they would have been favored there. And no matter who they would have played in the Super Bowl, to me, this was the worst loss they've ever had. Yeah, I, I think your reasoning spot on. I can't disagree with any of that. Um, there's a lot of focus since the game, Sal, about the final 13 seconds of regulation, obviously. And let's talk about Sean McDermott and the way he has uh, refused, really, to get into specifics about the final 13. Your your thoughts on the uh, decision to kick it deep. Um, tell me what you think of that. Yeah, again, we, we don't know what the actual decision was because Sean's not going to ever give it up. But, Murph, I have to believe that the plan was to kick it short of the goal line and make Pringle catch it and return it. Because, I, you know, everyone talked about squib kick, Murph. To me, that's a risky play. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, if, if, if Bass were to joint it off one of the guys up front accidentally and the Chiefs fall on it, they've got great field position. If you, if you get it down to where you want to get it to, the Chiefs are just taking a knee anyway, so you don't really – save time and then if you kick it deep though they've got to return it he can't risk letting that ball bounce and if it stays in play then they're totally screwed so i think the play had to be to kick it to the five yard line and make him return it and then you know go down and make a tackle when they they were good on special teams why were they so worried about a long return i mean come on so again we'll never know but the way it if you read between the lines of what Sean said, it felt to me that he wanted that to happen, and it was miscommunicated. I don't know if it was Heath Farwell or whoever, 
but Tyler Bass just banged it through, and I, I don't think that's what he wanted to do. Yeah, I see that, and I also, and I mean, I guess I've come to that conclusion also. I don't think Bass got the message maybe to hit it short, right? Not a squib, but to hit it a bit shorter. Let me play devil's advocate for a second, though, Sal. Um, well, first of all, and as I watched the game over yesterday, this struck me. The Chiefs, um, at the time, uh, uh, with the lead over Buffalo, one minute left, they kicked it deep. They allowed the Bills to start from their 25. Obviously, there's a difference between, what was there, 103 left and 13 seconds, but I mean, it was good enough for them to hit it deep and let the Bills start from their 25, and it cost them. They paid for it. The second thing is, though, and, and the bigger issue is, um, you know, they they so if they kick it short, the Chiefs are going to get the ball instead of the 25, maybe at the 10, the 15, and they're probably still going to be able to run two plays before they line up for a field goal. They only got 45 yards and set them in field goal range. I guess I'm, I'm not convinced that the decision to kick it deep made that much. I don't think it was the deciding factor in the end of the game. What do you think? Well, no, Murph, to be honest with you, the deciding factor was the way they played defense. Yep, the next right. two plays, yep. KC starts the 25-yard line. Are you kidding me? You're the number one defense in the NFL they're 45 yards away from field goal range. Are you telling me that Sean McDermott and Leslie Frazier couldn't trust their defense to make two plays or even one play? Even making one play would have been enough to prevent it. So maybe, like you know, what we've talked about, maybe the plan was to kick it through the end zone and just play defense for two plays, and they failed. Where, where they failed is how they played those two plays on defense. It was ludicrous. I watched it back too, Murph, yeah. and I, I, I'm counting where these guys were lined up and what yard line. And you just, why can't teams, why do they get so afraid, Murph, to just play their regular defense? The defense that was number one in the league, yeah. just play it the way you played all year. The Bills almost never give up the deep pass. I mean, the one that Hill scored on, it was a 15-yard pass that he you know, ran 64 yards for it. They never get beat over the top. Why are they so afraid of that? And and honestly, Sal, and the, and I have the same uh, complaints. The issue was the defense they played. And they're guarding the goal line. Well, the Chiefs didn't need to hit the end zone. They needed a field goal to send it to overtime. I don't know why the Bills felt like they had to protect the end zone and play a sort of a prevent defense there. And, and even the sideline. Yeah. Levi Wallace. Yep, was they had timeouts. The whole, exactly, they had timeouts. I mean, you're right. I, the, on the first play, Murph, Hyde and Boyer were 40 yards downfield. Yeah. I mean, it was almost like the Bills thought they had a four-point lead. <laughs> was, you yeah. know, I mean, I doubt, yeah. they, I, thought, I doubt that was the problem. But it almost played like they had a four-point lead and a field goal wasn't going to do any good. It was just bizarre. It was really a bizarre sequence of plays. And, and Sean said it. He's going to replay it a million times in his brain and gut. Yeah. And it's going to be, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt for a long time. Sean has said a couple of times Sunday night and again uh, on, uh, what was it, Tuesday this week, how uh, it was execution was at fault. And I find myself kind of parsing that. Is he talking about execution maybe in the traditional sense, the players failed to execute, or is it execution by members of his coaching staff? I don't know. Which way do you come down on yeah. that? I know. It's tough to read because he's never going to give us up, you know, what it really was. Was it did, – did they tell Tyler Bass – to kick it short and adrenaline got to him and he kicked it deep who knows maybe they maybe they didn't want uh Edmonds and Milano dropping in coverage as deep as they did which allowed both Hill and Kelsey to get wide open we don't know you're right I mean we could parse it all day long here and until he actually says this is what was supposed to happen we're never going to know so it's going to be a guessing game forevermore a very difficult loss out for the Bills players for the coaches for the for the fan base um, for the players and coaches, is, I mean, it's too soon to tell, I'm sure, but 
Is there a chance that that loss hangs over this team for a while, that they dwell on that loss even in the next season? Oh, Murph, I mean, you remember the Houston game two years ago, right? Yeah. Yep. I mean, that, that hung in the air because Josh wasn't Josh Allen yet, and there were questions about is, is he ever going to be a number one pick? And the way they lost that game, they blew a 16 nothing lead, that hung until week one of the season, and then they come out gangbusters and it was behind them even last year Murph when they lost the championship game what did we hear all offseason they're building the team to beat the Chiefs that game was in their brains again until they kicked off in September and I can't see how it'll be different this time especially with how that game ended it's gonna hang for a long time <laughs> it hurts hey you mentioned uh, Josh wasn't Josh yet he certainly is now and he you know he answered certainly all the questions anybody has ever had about him and I find myself wondering how much better Josh gets I mean Sal let's face it Josh Allen has improved every single year year to year and this year he got better during the course of the season he played amazing football the last two weeks you know the two playoff games much better than he'd played all season I don't know where the ceiling is for this guy I know. Murph, again, you and I have been covering this team since the 80s, and we've seen it all with quarterbacks. They've, they've had, they had the one great quarterback in Jim Kelly, and to watch this kid play, it has just been, I mean, I, you know, I'm getting to the point, Murph, where I'm getting close, right? Yeah. I'm getting close to retirement. Yep. He has been such a joy to watch, and, you know, I'm usually, you know, I can be pretty critical. I'll admit it. This kid, He's got me sold. He's unbelievable. What a fun player. He's a superstar already. And the only thing that that worries me, Murph, is that as he gets a little bit older, obviously the physical nature of his game probably can't continue into, you know, maybe his late 20s, certainly his early 30s. He can't keep playing the way he does outside the pocket. And that, you know, maybe we are seeing the ceiling and maybe he rides this ceiling for you know two or three years, but it's such a big part of his game. The mobility, the ability to run people over if he has to. I'm not sure how much longer he'll be able to keep that. And if, and if he loses that aspect, then what happens? Right. But, hey, we're going to worry about that two or three years down the road right. because right now he's a superstar. You know, there was a point in the season when they weren't running, letting Josh run the ball very much. And I thought, and I said on our broadcast, our Bills play-by-play, the Bills need to call like half a dozen runs for Josh per game. And I think that probably is the way to go, the formula maybe, for a few more years, and then you scale it down. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I've always been of the, of the mind, and he kind of disproved this at the end of the year because they did call a lot of straight quarterback runs. I was always of the mind, Murph. What I liked best about him was the scrambling. Like, give yeah. him play options where, look, if that first read's not there immediately – then tuck it and run because when he's in scramble mode, that's when he's the most dangerous. I mean, they did a great job at the end of the year of, of scheming up planned runs for Josh. They really did. They weren't doing that early in the year. But, man, when he's back to throw, Murph, there's no defense that can really have a, a play that could prevent him from scrambling the way he does for big games. That's where he's at his best as far as I'm concerned. And, and back to Sunday's game for a moment, as well as Josh played, his counterpart, Patrick Mahomes, played just as well, if not maybe a little bit better. This struck me, Sal. I'm interested in, in your thoughts on this. Um, 
Mahomes strikes me as like the Michael Jordan of pro football, right? And he's he's physically he's a great talent. He can th- make every throw. He can escape the, the pocket. He was mobile and and hurt the Bills with his running. But what he really does, and this is like Michael Jordan, he thinks the game better than anybody else. He's got a sense and he's like a genius as to what might work. And it reminds me of the way Michael Jordan was at his best with Chicago. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. He transcended the game. And, you know, the Bills, I, I wrote about this after the game, you know, for, to keep it to football. Unfortunately, right now, Patrick Mahomes to the Bills is becoming what Tom Brady was to the Bills. <laughs> he is the un- unscalable obstacle. This guy is going to be in their way, you know, for, for a decade, right? I mean, we got to figure Josh is going to be probably great for a decade. So is Mahomes. And the Bills have got to find a way to get past this guy and – we all saw it for 20 years with Brady. They never could do it. Now, granted, this is a better Bills team, a better organization. But and I even asked Sean the question after the in the post game. I said, Sean, you know, do you realize the reality you're facing? You have a great quarterback, but they have that guy, and you have not been able to handle him. He <laughs> said, "You're absolutely right. That is the reality of the situation." That's a tough one to swallow. One thing I wrote, uh, I read what you were writing, and I thought you made a really good point that has gone underreported. The Bills needed more from Stefan Diggs in that game uh, last Sunday, didn't they? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I haven't gone back play by play to look at what the Chiefs did. That's, you know, for the X's and O's nerds and the all 22s, and I'm not big. But you can't tell me, Murph, that the Kansas City Chiefs pass defense that lost Tyram Matthew in the first quarter had that good of a plan that Diggs couldn't get open against coverage. Daniel Sorensen was on the field for crying out loud. It, it, it was just bizarre. Now, again, Allen's got the ball in his hand. Ultimately, he's pulling the trigger. But there's just no way that you can convince me that Diggs just didn't have a good game and wasn't winning his routes enough. Now, again, they showed some of the touchdowns to, to Davis. And it was true when you look at it. Stefan Diggs was getting double covered. He pulled coverage away. And especially on the last one, I think, it was obvious that the safety came over and left the whole middle of the field for Davis to catch the ball. So I'm sure he played a role in that, Murph. But I'm sorry, man. (laughs) Your number one receiver can't have seven yards. Yeah, that was rough. Hey, Sal, one more leftover from the game. A lot of focus on, and it's not just a Buffalo thing, fortunately, a lot of focus on the overtime rules and the fact that the Bills never got a chance to get the ball in overtime. Um, the coin flip winner, I, I thought this was an interesting stat. I think you wrote it. The coin flip winner is 10-1 and one in uh, in postseason since they changed the rule, and seven times they've won it on the first possession. They need to change they, – they need for things to settle down. We need that here in Buffalo and maybe look at it in a cold, analytical way. But there's got to be a better way to decide it, isn't there? Yeah, and there is. And I've, I've got the solution, Murph. You ready for it? Yep. This is what I would do. Each team is guaranteed a possession team that wins the toss can decide whether they're going to receive it or they're going to kick off. If you receive the the ball, score a touchdown, great. The other team, Murph, with its possession, has if they do score a touchdown, they have to go for two points. Win or lose, right there. Each team gets one possession. You can choose to kick off, and then you'll know what you have to do by getting the ball second if you want to, if you win the toss. But one possession each, and then if the game, if, if, if it's not decided after that, you play sudden death. You play till you have a winner. But to guarantee the first two possessions, I think a lot of games would end after the second possession. 
the first, if the first team happens to punt after three plays, you got to punt. You can't go for it on fourth and 20. Right. The other team has a chance. If they punt, then it's free for all. But that's what I would do. If both teams were to score a touchdown, Murph, the second team, and there would be strategy involved with that, the second team has to go for two so we have a winner right then and there. That's what I would do. I think I like that. I mean, there, I, I tell you what I don't like. People say the college rule. I don't like the way the college rule, it, it's not football anymore. There's no field position in play when they start at the you know 25-yard line. The scores get ridiculously inflated. I don't, I don't think that would work in the NFL. No, you're right. I, I don't want to see the college rule. I want, I want them to play regular football. And like I said, if, if, if they did it the way I'm proposing they do it, you know, the team, the team gets the ball first. If they go three, if they go, you know, it's fourth and fifteen. You can risk going for it, but if you lose, if you don't get it, the other team gets the ball right there. It's, I think there'd be a lot of strategy involved with that. I, I really do. And to me, there's got to be a better way than what happened Sunday. It, that, yeah. that just can't keep going on. Hey, Sal. Last issue I want to talk about, and we're going to find out uh, today and this week what the Bills kind of an outline of what they're thinking. But what are you thinking? What is the one area, if you can boil it down to one, where do the Bills need to get better? Where do they need to add uh, personnel during this offseason moving forward? Well, I mean, it's going to depend on what they want to do with Beasley, for instance, and Sanders. I don't think they're going to re-sign Sanders. Beasley is certainly a cut candidate. I think they're going to retool at wide receiver. You've got Diggs. I think Davis. Murph, all year long, I didn't understand why Davis wasn't yeah. on the field more than he was. That just never made sense to me. So I think you've got two really good players, obviously a great player, and then Davis. I think I think you might move on from Cole Beasley. I think his axe worn a little bit thin. He's not quite the same player he was. So I think the Bills need to retool there. I mean, you've got to keep Josh Allen full with, with weapons. They've got the tight end in place. So I would look at wide receiver and really free agency and the draft. The one guy that I keep thinking about, Murph, that Braxton Berrios. Boy, he would look good, I yep. think, in the slot for the Bills. He's a great return man. You'd kill two birds with one stone. That's a guy I would think about. And then, obviously, offensive line. Look, I mean, maybe Ryan Bates is fine. I, I don't really know. He, he seemed to play okay. I'm no expert. But it seems like the interior, the guard positions especially, I think they need to upgrade. I think Feliciano is kind of done. I don't know what Daryl Williams has left. I, I would look there, too. Um, and then defensively, cornerback, Murph. <laughs> I yep. mean, you don't know what's going to happen with Trey White. We all hope that he comes back. Is he going to be the same player? They may not re-sign Levi. So I think, and, and let's face it, all year they did not have great depth at cornerback. Right. Now, I was always worried that if they had a spate of injuries, what the hell were they going to do? Yep. They got through it again. So I think cornerback is a place they've got to look at and probably edge rusher. Uh, all of the above, I agree with Sal, Sal Mariano, the author of 11 books, including Relentless, the hard-hitting history of Buffalo Bills football, a history book published a couple of decades ago that I keep here in my uh, cabinet. I use it a lot. And one of his uh, more recent books, When Buffalo Stood Atop the Sports World. I got to get that one, Sal. That one sounds like it's pretty entertaining, huh? Yeah, you're way behind, Merv. I'm up to 22 now. 22? Oh, boy. 22? Where have you been? <laughs> All right, I'll have to look again. What, what but, are you I, but, but I'm not I'm not writing Karuchi bestsellers, though, so yeah, what can I say? <laughs> what are you working on? You got a but, book in the in the hopper now? Well, I just finished a book uh, in the fall on the Yankee dynasty from 96 to 2000 called The Last Dynasty. So that one's out there for Yankee fans. But the book that you mentioned, When Buffalo Stood Atop the Sports World, that was really an enjoyable book for me to to me to write you and i were growing up in that era yeah. in the mid 70s and the premise of the book was the three years in the middle of the 70s um starting with the oj 1973 season and those three years 
the Bills, the Braves, and the Sabres were all really good teams, exciting teams to watch. And it, it, until the Bills of the Super Bowl era, the golden age of Buffalo sports for me was those mid-70s when they had the three teams. And I just went through it year by year, all three teams and what they did. And it's filled with anecdotes and player uh, features on the key players from those teams. A lot of the key moments and games I kind of break down. And people have loved it. It's, it's doing pretty well. And, uh, you know, guys our age have been, you know, absolutely sucking it right up because we all grew up in that era. We all remember it. So, yeah, it's, uh, they're, they're about, all my books are available on Amazon. But that one in particular has really hit home with a lot of folks from Buffalo. Excellent. Sal Mariano, the author of 22 books, and he covers the bills for the Rochester Democratic Chronicle. Sal, thanks for this. I really appreciate it. Hey, Murph. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with your host, John Murphy. Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. John Murphy here with the CEO of Sullivan's Brewing Company, Michael Mead. Michael, good to see you. Good to hear you. We haven't had you in a while. First question, how do you like the podcast <laughs> now that we're a year and a half old? What do you think? I think you've outperformed, John. I, uh, <laughs> I think it's that silky smooth voice and um, the fact that no, really you've had some incredibly uh, strong guests from the football side. I mean, you know, your network of um, people that you must have a positive impression on and that they're willing to come on and, and have a chat with you is really, really excellent. Well, thank you. I, I really enjoy doing this. It's kind of a, a low-key <laughs> way uh, to get football information out there, plus beer information. And uh, to your point about contacts. I mean, it allows me to connect with many of the people that I've known for many years, you know, and kind of, and, and talk with them for 15 or 20 minutes. In, in that sense, it's a, it's a, it's a real joy for me. It's, um, it's been an interesting bill season. And I love the fact that Sullivan's is affiliated with the bills broadcast and affiliated with Buffalo bills football. I mean, the bills are, they're almost, uh, you have to watch them, you know, they're must see TV or must see radio. I think they're so good right now. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you know, uh, I have season tickets and so, you know, and there's been plenty of thin years, um, yeah. but yeah, just the thrill of I mean, as rough as uh, the other night was just the thrill of how competitive we are took a ton of sting, sting out of that game for me personally. Anyway, I know <laughs> I, I can tell from the Twitter, Twitter sphere that a lot of people are really having a hard time with it, but you know, that's uh, that's a real quarterback that we have. And everybody knows that that's p the position you need first. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. We're, the, the bigger you're going to have you on is because just last week, Solomon's announced a uh, uh, a deal appointing Global Beer Network as the exclusive importer to the United States for Sullivan's Brewing Company. Tell me yep. about that and what exactly that means. Sure. So I know last week on the podcast, you had Steve Villani on yep. uh, who's the CEO of Global Beer Network. <laughs> Um, and by the way, I think he may have turned into a Bills fan. I got a, a text message from him last Sunday saying, go Bills. It's from good. Steve Milani. He's living in the heart of Patriots country, and he's rooting for the Bills last Sunday. He should. I mean, <laughs> they should see the light. And I'll tell you, it feels like the whole country uh, yeah. in terms of, you know, was really rooting for the Bills as well, which is great. Yeah. Well, you know, the Global Beer Network, um, you know, is a, a new partner for us. We signed our agreement two weeks ago. And believe me, the... Uh, the wheels are turning on getting the whole operation kind of in sync um, and up and running. But for, for a, a smaller brand like Sullivan's, um, you know, we started in Buffalo as our first market, as you know, um, central New York, Cleveland and whatnot. And that 
you know, was a long slog. Um, and um, even despite COVID over the last couple of years, we, we, we are in 11 states now. And in, and in um, six of those 11 states, we're distributed statewide. So we've made a ton of progress despite COVID. Obviously, um, depending on which of those states we're talking about, you know, um, whether or not the bar game is at X capacity or Y capacity, you know, is different really in each state. And as we, we know from New York state itself, it can be different county to county. So it's been um, a lot of progress in a really odd environment. And I know a ton of your hospitality and beer guests have had to unfortunately focus on how they are, um, you know, plowing through the COVID environment and its different stages along the way. And so there's that. But what Global Beer does for Sullivan's is they distribute and will now have the ability to distribute Sullivan's in all 50 states, in the Virgin Islands and in Puerto Rico. And, you know, that's just hugely exciting for us and who we want to be as a global beer brand. Um, so that's part one. You know, and part two about, you know, Global Beer and their expertise is they have a team of 30, all very, very capable beer people with great beer backgrounds. Um and so, you know, they're, they're by every kind of thought to me, they're, they're really like an extension of our company as a business partner, as they go out and penetrate the different markets where we're, we're currently not selling beer. I mean, we're two weeks into this and they've already added seven states in Washington, D.C. Um, and, and quite frankly, what we're managing now, including on a call this morning in Ireland is, you know, um, our capacity to meet this renewed demand as we kind of ramp up with them and um, not to be long winded here, but global beer, you know, has proven um, incredibly, um, you know, their, their expertise by um, really, if you look at their portfolio, it defines who they are and they have world-class beers imports in their, in their portfolio and only about nine breweries. So it's quite a privilege to be added to them. And if anybody's ever had the Belgian beer Chimay or Schneiderweiss out of Germany or Stiegel, which is, I'll call it the national beer. I, I don't know if it really is of Austria. Yeah. Those are real, real, you know, beer brands that are global and wildly respected. And so if we could grow into anywhere near anything like that, that would be a thrill. Michael, on, on the first point, uh, nationwide distribution for Sullivan's, um, where does the United States fit into Sullivan's uh Game plan. It, I think listeners should know it's an international brand built, uh, brewed in Kilkenny and distributed in several parts all over Europe. Where's the United States? How big a piece is the United States in Sullivan's? I think, you know, if we would have kept going as we were going, the United States probably would have been, you know, let's call it 85% of our sales as we look at the kind of the, the round globe. Um, but that's, you know, just because of the mere size of our country, um, you know, and we weren't going to stop at 11 states anyway. We were just going to, you know, try to, like we always talk about, further entrench in existing markets and expand our footprint. That was kind of the mantra or the, the roadmap. Um, but I mean, with this, obviously that big country and further penetration to it, into it quickly is, you know, it could be that we're really going to be 95% U.S. focused and I don't mean focus is the wrong word, I would say. Um, it just means, again, there's just more consumers sitting here in these 50 states. And, um, and, and so it just sort of falls like that. But I will say, you know, Dan Smithick and the Irish team have shown, you know, great 
kind of oomph lately. Um, not lately, that would be unfair. Um, I just mean all along here, but like when I, when I do say lately, I mean, COVID and the lockdown in Ireland was as vicious as any of our examples here uh, by, you know, fivefold. And despite all that, you know, when I say lately, I'm thinking about COVID, you know, we didn't really have a great packaged game in Ireland. And Dan led that into, um, into really true penetration of stores in Ireland recently led us into Sweden. Our first container uh, landed in Sweden. And just this Monday, we went on sale in Sweden nationally. You know, there's some real things going on. We're having conversations with uh, Slovakia, um, Poland, the Netherlands, and Mexico. So there's a lot on the horizon for us. And so, you know, Europe's also a big, uh, big landmass with a lot of consumers. So you never know where it will shake out. But in the short run, the U.S. would dominate just because of how we're positioned right now. Hey, Michael, the traditional and longstanding uh, setup in the United States has been brewer, uh, wholesaler, and, um, you know, the, the retail uh, market bars or stores. Where does Global Beer Network fit into that, if at all? So the way to think about Global Beer Network, it's interesting, you know, today or maybe yesterday, we would ship beer into the port of New Jersey. Um, our import agent would uh, pull us through the customs process, you know, because alcohol is a controlled um, substance. Right. We would then head to a warehouse and then our various distributors, which currently is about uh, 2022 distributors, um, wholesalers, um, they would then order beer from us, come and pick it up uh, at our warehouse in New Jersey. And then <clears throat> that would be how we sort of uh, attack the wider market. What global beer is for us is actually like a, a single buyer, if you will. Um, they're not an agent. They actually directly import our beers into their warehouse in uh, Massachusetts now in this case. Um, and the various wholesalers, um, really are facing global beer and not Sullivan's under this arrangement. So it's kind of like they're just going to extend, you know, if we have the 20 or 22 distributors now, we might end up with whatever, 60, you know, and they're all buying beer directly from, uh, from global beer going forward. And now we're into the logistics part of it. And before we get to global, tell me about some of the challenges Sullivan's has faced logistically to, to import beer from uh, Kilkenny, Ireland to the U.S. And maybe we should, first of all, talk about pre-COVID. It's, it wasn't easy, I wouldn't think, even before COVID, right? Well, I mean, pre-COVID looks like a rosy field to me right now. I, <laughs> you know, to be honest, I can't think of anything that was aggravating pre-COVID except yeah. for, you know, there are a lot of moving parts, right? Yeah. In our old example, pre-COVID, it, it was, it's the same supply chain for us. You know, if you take out what we need to buy for materials, you know, like labels and kegs and the rest of it, you know, the logistical piece was how do we get from our brewery to the port in Dublin? How do we get on a ship? Does that ship stop in Liverpool or Rotterdam? And then, you know, it, it, it uh, ends up into the port of New Jersey as it still does today. Um, <clears throat> those moving parts, you know, people were going to work in all countries. <laughs> people weren't ill you know, beaten down with a bug um, in all countries generally. And so it was just, that's how the world turns, right? And now we can see that supply chain has reached, you know, a national discussion. And most people probably never even used that phrase before, unless they were working in a, you know, a business that required moving things around. And 
Um, you know, we've seen photos in newspapers now of the backlog at the port in Long Beach, which is, I believe, America's busiest port in California. You know, the backup of just ships sitting at sea and so forth. What's ironic for Sullivan's during COVID is we didn't have a hard time getting from our brewery to the port of Dublin or over here on a ship. Where it all broke down for us is really um, stateside in the U.S., sort of the labor environment, you know, congestion at ports. And you can think about anybody working or walking around um, that port on over to warehouse workers on over to, you know, it's pretty well publicized that there's a massive uh, shortage of uh, CDL uh, drivers. So commercial, um, commercial driver's license holders. So, you know, unfortunately, our wholesaler partners, those 20 or 22 distributors, they would experience significant pain and still do today and getting drivers to come to our warehouse and pick up our beer. Yeah. So, it's been ugly for sure. So how does Global Beer Network uh, solve those problems for the, uh, for the 22 distributors? And more once they add them, right? right? So right. the way they solve for it, I mean, I could see this a mile away as we were having discussions, you know, their own employees work in their warehouse. So it's, you know, this question of what's going on with my purchase order and how do I get it fulfilled? You know, it's a direct line, you know, to you know, downstairs, literally downstairs from their offices is their warehouse. And so, you know, the ability to just, you know, manage that internally with your own people for them is what's going to please all their distributors. Uh, and ultimately, you know, who does that please? It pleases the retail owners, you know, the, the bars and restaurants and then the consumer because they go in to find a beer and it's consistently supplied to the market. So I, not only and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like not only will Global Beer Network make it uh, make Sullivan's more widespread, all 50 states, including uh, some of the territories. But it'll also make it easier to to move the product to market, right? Is that what you're thinking? More efficient, anyway. Hundred percent. And you know, without getting into too many details of the arrangement, but actually, Global Beer handles the entire piece that we previously handled, which is um, over ocean freight and inland freight into their warehouse. So they literally will be picking up um, Sullivan's from our brewery, and uh, and you know, that's again a single chain of events that it's happening under the control of one place. That's uh, tremendous. And the other piece to this that's very interesting, and we were in the middle of working on it anyway, but, you know, sort of the fad, it's not a fad, it's a reality, is DTC or direct-to-consumer um, fulfillment, um, e-commerce, right? And so Global Beer, in our arrangement, you know, really in 10 to 14 days now, we'll have beer that any consumer in the United States will be able to buy online. Um, through um, Craft Shack. So craftshack.com, any of uh, your listeners could go on there, open an account and select from a wide, wide, wide range of beers um, and beers that you might not be able to get in your local market. So if you've ever heard of a cool craft brewery from Colorado or Oregon, and you just know that it's not going to be in your local store, you can buy it on Craft Shack. And what's great for Sullivan's is you're going to be able to buy all of our beers on Craft Shack as well. Um, Global Beer, you mentioned their um, portfolio of uh, very good premium, I guess you would call uh, European brands, uh, Chimay and Stiegel. Where does Sullivan's fit into that portfolio? Uh, the only Irish beer they have, right? How does that fit into their portfolio and how do you think that'll work for Sullivan's? Besides all the things we talked about with the streamlining of logistics sure. 
And, um, you know, hopefully the uh, softening of supply chain woes that will go with that. This is, um, for me, um, I was most impressed with their people and their attitudes and their you know, a general happiness about going to work and selling beer. It's, it's, it's just it's a rare to find that today, huh? Yeah, right. You know, like, and, and really what it is, is it's a match made in heaven because they don't have an Irish uh, um, beer in, you know, beer brewery in their portfolio. And we needed to expand our distribution. So it's kind of a, a joint mission. It's really aligned uh, just by definition what they do and what we were hoping to do. Um, so, you know, like I think, you know, you could see this, how this will play out if in a certain bar in Boston or New York City, they're pouring Chimay. Well, the global beer team can go in and talk about Sullivan. So they have the ability now to sell, which they already had been doing anyway, um, uh, their portfolio, which now includes Irish, which is tremendous. I guess the last thing, Michael, what um, I don't we're not over with COVID yet. Hopefully we're close, but it's been challenging, right? How challenging has it been? And what have been the biggest issues that Sullivan's has faced and Sullivan's has weathered the storm, I would think, through the, the COVID disruption. Right. But what do you see going forward? Yeah, I think we, you know, we grew very um, strongly in both of the COVID years. I'll call them, you know, 2020 and 2021. Right. Um, you know, I'm massively inspired by what Ireland did over the weekend on Saturday morning of, of all time. 6 a.m. Saturday morning, COVID disappeared from Ireland. And what I mean by that is. You know, they had a number of restrictions uh, and very draconian ones for a long time around COVID, and they just made them all go away for bars and restaurants. So no masks. You can stand at the bar, sit at the bar. You can go to normal opening hours. Um, you know, so, so I find that very inspiring because you we would have to see, you know, that there's light at the end of the tunnel for the United States and for various markets. And we know again, cause we're such a big landmass that will be different regionally or state by state or whatever it might be. Um, so I think what's on the horizon for us is really the opportunity. We saw challenges where wholesalers, you know, were ordering less beer because they needed to be cautious because they didn't want to get stuck with stock that may or may not see pull through. And you have to understand those things. Um, but I think that the, the horizon here is, you know, if the bar world was stunted and we saw examples of this, hey, X place has 30 taps, a number of them might only be pouring six of those taps. You know, we saw sort of, you know, progress and then backward steps throughout the last two years. And now, you know, as restrictions will continue to wane, I think what I would observe, and I live on the road in all these bars and restaurants, you know, assessing markets and so forth. To me, you know, despite whatever fears certain people have, if it's open, the American consumer is willing to go. Uh, and the consumer is willing to go and wants to be in the social setting of bars, restaurants, whether it's watching a game or seeing their friends. And I think that, you know, the opportunity besides just our footprint expansion that Global Beer is going to enable for us, it's really the fact that people are going to be in bars and restaurants having a good time again. And that means keg sales are going to be, you know, dramatically improving for the better. It sounds good. It sounds promising. I can't wait. Hey, Michael, thanks for this. Thanks for continuing my education into the, the beer industry. And I, I hope our listeners got a lot out of this too. It sounds like a great partnership between Sullivan's and, and Global Beer Network. Thank you. 
Thank you for having me. And thanks for doing a great job on this podcast. You know, really for the last couple of years, we get a lot of, you know, comments about it. So I think that means that um, it's worth the endeavor. And I uh, love listening to it each week, John. So I appreciate it. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with John Murphy. Well, that's our podcast, Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks to our last guest, Sullivan CEO Michael Mead, talking about Sullivan's new deal with the Global Beer Network and what it means. It means a lot, I think, to consumers. It means a lot for Sullivan's. Sullivan's is available now in many places, Buffalo, all over upstate New York, New York City, Long Island, Boston, New Jersey, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Ohio, Atlanta, Savannah, Georgia, Nashville, and other parts of Tennessee. But based on what Michael Mead said about the deal with Global Beer Network, Sullivan soon will be available all over the United States. That's a very exciting prospect for Sullivan's Brewing Company. It's great to talk with Michael about the logistics of the beer industry and the challenges presented by COVID. Hope we're almost through those. Also great talking with my pal Sal Mariana of the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. Great reporter. He's been covering the bills for decades since the way back in the Super Bowl era, like 25, 30 years ago. I thought we needed his perspective. He's got great perspective. We share many of the same opinions about Sunday's loss to the Chiefs, about the bills in general, and about the future of the franchise. I also think Sal has a great way of questioning what's going on. You know, he's not just nodding his head yes. He questions what he sees, questions what's, what's done. I don't always agree with him, but I, I find his perspective very interesting. He agreed with me, I think, that in the hands of Josh Allen, the Bills quarterback, unquestionably the leader of the franchise with Patrick Mahomes, uh, Josh Allen, one of the best two quarterbacks of the game. They put that on display last Sunday with Josh. The Bills' future looks very, very bright. Thank you for listening. Thanks to our producer, Pat Feldball. We're going to be back with another podcast soon, maybe next week. We'll see what happens. You know, if you have a suggestion for a podcast or a guest for the podcast or questions about what we do, shoot us an email. Want to read one? I got an email uh, a while ago from Daniel Ryan Howarth of Berlin, Vermont, and I'm sorry it took so long to get to it. But he says, uh, I'm a big beer aficionado, and my DNA programs me to love all things Irish. So it's natural for me to really appreciate the content of your program. And Daniel Haworth goes on to say, keep the conversations with former Bills players like Daryl Talley, Thurman Thomas, etc. coming. I enjoy hearing reminiscing about their days and, and uh, games gone by. Well, we have. We talked with Daryl a while ago, a month or two. We talked with Jim Kelly a couple weeks ago. Uh, and he also, Daniel Haworth goes on to write, it would be great to hear more stories about microbreweries in the Buffalo Bills radio network area or perhaps breweries in cities the Bills are playing in on their road games. That's a good idea, Daniel. Thanks for corresponding, Daniel Haworth of Berlin, Vermont. And all of you are welcome to send in your, uh, you know, send in your ideas or your questions. Just send it to our email address, Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff at gmail.com. One word, Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff at gmail.com. We may read your email on the air as well. All right, that's it. We'll talk to you soon right here on Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. You've been listening to John Murphy and Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's all about the Bills and the Beards.